Hey everyone, it's Paul here. This week's episode is part of a special collaboration I did participating in a live stream with one of the best, vastly underrated theology YouTube accounts out there. It is the Irish Gen Z meta modern theology YouTuber extraordinaire, Theocracy. I love his channel. I don't know why it doesn't have 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 subscribers. He's way ahead of the curve on stuff. And uh, I've had a few conversations with him before, and it's really, really good because he is, again, he's like on the, the, not just the bleeding edge, he is on the front side of the bell curve, way out far in front, and um, has actually helped expose me to many of the things that have helped me make connections to this metamodern shift, understanding what's going on in the generation younger than me. I am a geriatric millennial, and he is a, a Zoomer. And uh, having conversations with him has been incredibly helpful. So in today's discussion, uh, I jump on with him to answer some questions about metamodernism. But we also talk about the Patrick Bateman Sigma male meme culture out there, you know, with its tangential affiliations with Andrew Tate and all of these sort of Sigma male accounts. If you don't know what that is, uh, well, stay tuned. You'll learn more about it. And we talk about some other things, including this pagan resurgence, this especially in online communities, this attraction to this narrative about the machoism of Zeus in comparison to the weakness of Christ. Why is there such a strong attraction to that? Why is there a resurgence of this sort of like tradcath online culture, traditional Catholic culture, all of this stuff? And I think Theocracy has its finger on the pulse really well for what's going on in these spaces. So it was really fun to talk to him about it, give him some of my perspective to also hear from him and learn from him as well. So I think you'll find this conversation fascinating. There's a lot of review stuff from the previous episodes on metamodernism. Hopefully I re-say it in a way or maybe cover some things with a different emphasis or different emphasis, I should say, than maybe what I have said in previous lectures on metamodernism and helps you understand it in a new way. So I, I think today's episode will hopefully be of great benefit to you as you listen. I would encourage you, you know, this is an ad-free episode. Thanks to Theopracy for hosting and facilitating it. This is an ad-free podcast, and I can't do it without the support of listeners just like you. We're still pretty well short of our goal of 200 patrons. And so please consider, if you've been listening to this program for years, or you've just started getting into it the last couple of months, and you're finding it to be in the, maybe the top five things of what you're listening to regularly, I would encourage you, please consider supporting on Patreon. Uh, I am, you'll notice that I've invested more time and energy into videos lately on my YouTube channel. And so if you're not subscribed over there, I invite you to subscribe as well. But it's a considerable amount of attention. Uh, sometimes between everything else that I'm doing, I'm working on videos 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. to get these things out there in hopes of connecting with a new segment of people that maybe don't do the audio podcast. Or maybe they just have no idea what we've been doing on Deep Talks for the last five years and YouTube and doing these videos, especially the ones that are exploring intersections of theology and philosophy in popular culture, are a great gateway. It's a great way to invite people into the door of exploring things like cultural theology. And actually, I find with YouTube, there's a lot more people that don't come from a Christian context that are engaging, reaching out, leaving comments, and that's really fun as well. So 
In order to keep all that afloat, would you please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon today, and then you get a bunch of extra bonus perks, bonus Q&A episodes. You can hop on live Zoom discussions with me and listeners from all over. So thanks for considering that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Theocracy on Metamodernism, Sigma Male Culture, Pagan Zeus versus, uh, you know, the perceived weakness of Christ and much more. Paul, for my audience who is not familiar with your content, uh, who's not been listening to your uh, lectures, can you please uh, 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 feed us into what is this uh, metamodernism? Totally. And I have to say your channel, which I always rave about to everybody. I don't know why this, I mean, I'm not being, this is not a paid promotion. But I don't know why it doesn't have 10, 20,000 subscribers already. I think you're just that far ahead of the curve on stuff. Um, I don't think he'd mind me saying this too, but like Andy Squires sends me your stuff all the time. He loves it too. He's always like, this guy's genius. So kudos. And honestly, some of what you've done in watching your videos has helped me become more aware of the metamodern shift. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more later, but maybe it'd be helpful to understand modernism, postmodernism to understand what metamodernism is reacting against and both trying to synthesize together. So one way of thinking about modernism, and this is vast oversimplification, but I think maybe some of these ideas and connections are helpful. Thinking about what modernism is, there's a couple like historical events that would be really helpful for helping you get like the ethos and spirit of modernism. So one of them would be the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, for many people, marks kind of like the beginning stages of modernism. And what the Protestant Reformation was about, beyond like theological controversies and disputes um, between Luther and Calvin, and you know, you think of the, the reformers, is understanding like kind of what animated that, or maybe what was the takeaway in uh, culture in the West from the Reformation. So you think about Martin Luther a guy that is in some ways considering himself as a singular voice of truth up and against hierarchical institutions that he believes have become, you know, originally maybe just like not competent, but, you know, he becomes increasingly um, angry about what he perceives as not just like non-competence in the Roman Catholic Church, but he actually perceives as malevolence in the church. But the interesting thing about Luther, right, is this is a what Luther points to is like he's claiming that up and against the institutional order of the church, that he is able to apprehend the truth in a way that even the Pope himself is missing. And this is such a revolutionary idea. It's not just revolutionary in the West, but it would also be a revolutionary idea in many ways in the East, because much of the ancient world and the traditional story operated under something like in the East, they called it the mandate of heaven. The mandate of heaven was like the gods institute the kings and the emperors, and the kings and the emperors are in their place. This is why we have pyramids everywhere, Illuminati, right? At the very top of the social hierarchy. And descending down from there, eventually you get to the little peons like you and me, who are just the peasants, right? And your job is to play your role in the order that God has mandated. In like the West, you might might have called it like the divine right of kings. So Luther comes around and like, not that this, I, th I don't think this was his direct intention, but the effect of his work and the Reformation was that people started to invert the pyramid. So instead, what Luther was saying was like, hey, 
you know what? You don't even have to have like an, a priest ordained and sanctioned by the church in order to have communion. And then of course the Anabaptists take it like a step further, right? Like they are really inverting the pyramid. <clears throat> and what that's all about is like you as an individual, you can have access as a lone individual to the truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Theologically, it was because they were emphasizing that you have one mediator in Christ Jesus between God and humanity. They're trying to remove that mediating structure, which they thought was corrupt. So think of the Protestant Reformation as the lone individual trusting his or her gut, typically his, right, up and against the institutional authorities that have obscured our view of the truth. A really good example of this in like modern storytelling, I've talked about this in a couple of videos and lectures. If you want to get like a glimpse, this is going to sound really weird. If you want to get a glimpse of like the ethos of modernism, the ethos of the Reformation, you just need to watch Top Gun. The original Top Gun movie mm -hmm. captures it. It's the spirit, right? Maverick is, is a lone voice. He's trusting his gut right up and against in this case he didn't think his superior officers were corrupt but he's up and against his superior naval officers right he trusts his gut and in the end he's proven to be right by trusting his instincts that he can perceive the truth even when others can't that animates so much of modernism so you tell these modern stories over and over again the other historical movement i should mention is of course like the enlightenment so rene descartes i think therefore i am Descartes' philosophy located the ability of the individual to learn truth. So there you have Luther, Descartes, <laughs> looking like the imprisoned Apostle Paul. Yeah, that's a great comment right there. I think you look sharp. Um, so you got Descartes, yes, Luther. You know, they're not directly connected, but much of what the Enlightenment was doing was taking the ramifications of the Protestant Reformation, where you invert the hierarchy and say, you know what? The people, the masses are on top. So we need to have representative democracy. We need to have checks and balances against institutional authority. Thomas Jefferson, Declaration of Independence. That's like the ideal modernist document. We have rights not given to us by the state or by institutional hierarchies. We have rights directly given to us by God as individuals. You can see that story, the modern story playing over and over again. It's not just Top Gun. It's you can see it like classic American 80s sitcoms still do this. You know, I've talked about like The Cosby Show, Home Improvement. Those are great examples of like yeah, it's still in the genre of comedy, but what you notice over and over again is the emphasis of the individual can ascertain truth and the individual can rise in the social hierarchy, not because they were born into a certain class, but because of their work ethic. So this might sound totally stupid, but you go rewatch 80s and 90s Cosby Show episodes. And even though it's an African-American family who at that time, you know, would still be considered in many regards lower in the American social hierarchy, they are almost universally celebrated in American culture. Why? It's not because of like their skin color. It's because they are actually people that have worked built, you know, uh, Mr. Huxtable is a doctor. His wife is a lawyer. They're always preaching to their kids education. And they're doing this because they want them to participate in the modern meritocracy instead of the aristocracy. So postmodernism yeah. comes along 
and it looks at these stories and it goes, okay, so the individual rebelling against the corruption, the corrupt powers, the malevolence, or maybe just the lack of competence of hierarchical institutions. That's a fun story that you've been telling, but postmodernism, and this is like more at the folk level that this is happening. Postmodernism comes along and goes, okay, but there are some people that are still not being included in this story. Like, why is all your Top Gun movies and all of these feature people like, you know, uh, Tom Cruise and your Indiana Jones movies and all of this? It seems to not be including everybody in the story. And so, what postmodernism sought to do was to like deconstruct the modern story and go, yeah, you're saying it's a meritocracy, but the rules aren't fair. You know, so if you were born into this situation, right. Yeah, like Huxtable's cute story, but like that doesn't happen to most minorities in the West. You know, this was the counter narrative to that. So here's the here's like the overarching theme of postmodernism. All of the stories you have been telling in the traditional era and the modern era have been masking a play for power. And all meta stories, you said we would use that word following yep. through. <laughs> all meta stories are masking a play for power. So there is, there can be no universal overarching meta story. And so you get like Fight Club, for example. Fight Club was in my heyday, like, like a really um, popular postmodern critique because what it was doing was saying, hey, look at this like narrative of the American dream. You're going to work your nine to five. You're going to go to school. You're going to get your degree. You're going to work an office job. And all you're going to do is accumulate crappy, overpriced furniture. Is that the life you want to live in? And of course, the protagonist in that story is completely depressed. He's experiencing the meaning crisis, all of that stuff. And here comes like Tyler Durden, you know, or here comes his, his shadow, spoiler alert. And he's like, deconstructing it all the problem was like for my generation that like lived through that they lived through seinfeld you know seinfeld was like yeah it wasn't like as dark obviously as fight club in the end fight club left you with nothing it deconstructed all of your narratives everything that you valued and said this is stupid it's going to lead to depression it's going to lead to like what would be more enjoyable to live in would be like just get together with your dudes fight it out become hoodlums try to deconstruct civilization and society but then at the very last scene like everything's burning to the ground and what are you left with you know seinfeld the show about nothing was like hey you know all of these like sitcom stuff we're gonna kind of like invert your expectations on that and we're gonna tell you a story about nothing that actually shows you how so much of your life isn't filled with these like moralizing stories, you know, that you would see in Full House and Step by Step and all the other sitcoms. It's like, yes, your life is filled with a bunch of nothing. Like, it's so mundane. Like, did you ever notice? That was like Jerry Seinfeld's thing. Did you ever notice what's right under your nose? And it wasn't necessarily leading you to the conclusion of, oh, this is extremely and intrinsically valuable. Because how did the show end? The show ended, the series ends with all of the main characters going to prison because the whole series, they've actually acted without really any sense of moral compass or any values. And so all of the past characters from previous seasons come back. There's a trial. 
and George, Jerry, Elaine, Kramer end up in prison, found guilty essentially for being like degenerate human beings. They didn't give you a story to live in. So if you came out of that postmodern cynicism, right? Matt, last name. I'm like tired of all these shows that were so cynic and foolish. Like I see that's a great comment, Matt. If you grew up in that, this is what metamodernism is about. So people that have lived through that story are like, I'm, I have to live in a story. So you've deconstructed everything. Like you've deconstructed my religion by telling me, yes, like you, the only reason why you're a Christian, Paul, is because you grew up in the Midwest in America to Christian parents and you are not aware that you are situated in a story. So then I become like aware, oh man, I'm a situated in one story among many. Now what? Like, do I just leave that story? And so I think what people started to become aware of, like, and I think some of this shift has started to happen more broadly in like the 2000s, 2010s, and now it's moving into pop culture with, you know, especially I think like your generation and younger who their native tongue was postmodernism. And so much of postmodernism was marked by cynicism, like ironic cynicism. So irony, like in service of showing you, hey, I am not trying to be sincere because I know all sincere stories are actually masking a play for power. So I got to like wink, wink every time I talk about something because I have to show to you that I'm not like a colonizer. You know, I have to show to you that I'm not naively be believing just one story. The metamodern impulse is people tired and burned out from going, so I'm supposed to not ever live in any kind of story? Or you're telling me that all stories mask a play for power isn't a story that masks a play for power? Like, if that's true, then I have to have a question about whether or not all stories. So I want to live in a story. I want to find something hopeful. I actually want to have meaningful connection with other people. And now you see this shift happening. But the cool thing or unique thing about it that I've observed is that, and I actually think you do this a lot on your channel, you have to still, in order to say something sincere, you still have to use the vocabulary and aesthetic of postmodernism, the irony. But the irony doesn't lead to cynicism. Like the irony in metamodernism tends to move you towards hopefulness or to sincerity. But you can't just say something sincere. Like you can't just be in a metamodern movie. You can't just be like an episode of Full House, like a TGIF show from the 80s and 90s. That shows like naivete. You have to show that you're aware. Like you do things that show like I'm breaking the fourth wall. You know, in breaking the fourth wall, I'm doing my Deadpool impersonation because I have to show you that I'm aware that I'm in a story and I have to show humility that, yeah, my story that I'm living in, it might not be right, but I still want to live in one. And like, I realize you want to live in a story too. So how do like, how do we talk about that? And I think that's what's going on in the meta modern moment. It's an effort at sincerity through irony, an effort to live in a hopeful and wholesome story. Last thing I say, because I've been talking for way too long consecutively, and I want to make sure you got time for questions. I want to pick your brain on stuff too, if that's okay. But I've talked about some examples. Yeah. Here's a couple of like great examples of metamodernism in pop culture right now. My single 
favorite one is uh, a lesser known show. It aired on like Adult Swim and then got re-aired on like HBO Max and it's Joe Parra Talks With You. Joe Parra Talks With You is to me like the quintessential example of metamodernism. It yeah. features a guy who's actually does like stand-up comedy and you kind of don't know if it's him or if he's like doing a thing, like doing a bit the whole time. But he's a guy, it looks like he's in his 30s, but he just as much looks like he could be like in his 50s or 60s. He is very much like unassuming looking. In the show, he plays like a middle school choir teacher. And he does all of these postmodern things, like he breaks the fourth wall. It feels heavily ironic. You're expecting the whole time as you watch it to be like the irony is going to turn on the main characters to show how stupid they are. But in the end, every single episode is like the most wholesome thing you have ever watched. It's painfully wholesome. Like my wife struggles to watch it with me because she's <laughs> like, I'm expecting the whole time something bad or someone to make fun of this guy because he is so, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to use this word or not because it's not my generation, but he, he he seems like so cringy, right? But it's like a, right. a self-aware, I've called it like, you have non-self-aware cringe and then you have self-aware cringe. Like non-self-aware cringe, you can't have. Self-aware cringe where you actually like embrace the cringe is the way you can actually get at sincerity and that show does it so well. Um, probably like another character that might embody this a little bit. I'm not like as big a fan, but um, is uh, like the character Ted Lasso, right? So Ted Lasso embodies this, there's like something ironic about him. And you're expecting, as you look at this guy, the old mode would be to use him as an example of critique, like critiquing American culture, critiquing this, critiquing that. But what he's actually doing, <laughs> I got, thank you, Garth, for permission. <laughs> I got the, I got the pass to say the C word. Um, <laughs> you actually see with him that in the end, like he his like painful wholesomeness disarms everybody else. So that's been a lot of talking. Um, I don't know if you've got other, any questions about what I brought up, but yeah. Not a problem. Um, <clears throat> my apologies in the cough. Uh, I've been doing that for like two weeks now. Um, I want to briefly look at uh, some comments um, before I say anything. Uh, this question by Tom, Jay Tom. Uh, hey, what Jay do you Tom. think about the, the Office as the first meta modern sitcom? Man, that's a, I know that's a really good question. And like, I've gone back and forth on the Office. Um, okay, so a case for the Office being one of the first meta modern sitcoms is that. It's actually trying to get at sincerity, especially when you get out of like the first season. The first season or the first yeah. few episodes of the first season, they're really trying to do the British office thing. And the British office thing, I mean, to me, was Still, a lot funnier. Doesn't work. <laughs> um, but it was, it was that, um, like Ricky Gervais humor oh, okay. <laughs> is all, it's all based on making you like cringe and hurt and your face going like this as you watch. Um, so I think The Office was maybe trying to get 
at sincerity it was doing things like breaking the fourth wall with that kind of like documentary style stuff um i i don't like the case against it was i'd say the case against it for me is that uh a part of it is i just like personally i I felt like that show kind of got to a point where it started to lack self-awareness. And I think that's a big part of metamodernism is that you have right. to like demonstrate um, kind of like a, a self-awareness about your place in the story. Um, I don't know. I, I can, I could hear arguments for or against, I'm not like anti the office, but um I don't know. I, I'm I'm open. I'm open to having like a discussion about that. I'm not claiming to be the 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 expert on all things in regards to metamodernism. I think I I would, I would say the other thing in favor of it. So maybe the strengthens the question is that like metamodernism takes so postmodernism. You take the irony and you use the cynicism to deconstruct huge systems. Like we're taking down capitalism or we're taking down colonialism. We're taking down whatever ism. Metamodernism seems to use like the irony and instead of if there's any critique attached to it, it's usually aimed more at getting individuals to reflect on themselves, you know, so I would say it's like more therapeutic than revolutionary. If that makes any sense. So uh, the one way I'd say that it, might be I could probably go both ways with that. Yeah, say more. Okay, so... <clears throat> um, yes, say more, I will. So, I see your point about the metamodernism being um, more inwardly uh, critical rather than, you know, outwardly critical. Um, and so, when I... I'm going to give some examples of uh, metamodern... Uh, creators and by some examples I really just mean one um, for me one of the most apt uh, meta modern like YouTubers out there um, slash postmodern no slash post ironic um, is a dude called Dreg uh, J-R-E-G if you're on YouTube you might be aware of the dude um, I've sent you Paul a bunch of his videos because uh, I just think that they're so wild um, um in their communication but uh, what makes drag so interesting um and i've been called a christian drag in one of my comment sections um what makes drag so interesting is that when you're watching his videos and you're not um and you're not familiar with uh like if you're not part of a meta modern uh narrative or cultural context or you're just not aware of it yet and all you're aware of is either modernism or postmodernism, and you engage with a uh, dreg's work, you might think to yourself, wow, this dude's being so outlandish. He must be ironic. So uh, I'll talk about his early YouTube uh, career, we'll say, where the dude effectively was this um, anti-centrist political YouTube channel. Uh, his whole shtick was every extreme political position is a-okay with me except centrism <laughs> if you're a centrist or a moderate get out and go die um but every other extreme position doesn't matter how like opposed they are on the political spectrum 
it doesn't matter. So effectively, he inverts the uh, Overton window and says, Overton window, anything in that? Typically, the Overton window says anything within this window is acceptable. Anything outside of it is unacceptable. He inverts that and says anything in the Overton window is unacceptable and everything outside of it is acceptable. Um, broadly mm -hmm. speaking, this is because of a um, criticism against uh, the status quo and how the status quo basically doesn't achieve anything other than its own self-perpetuation. And mm -hmm. centrists and moderates are, um, by their own nature, incapable of changing the status quo. Only extremists can change it. And so regardless, it doesn't matter what position you take, as long as it challenges the centrist status quo, that's a good position. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it's communism, fascism, uh, anarcho-communism, or anarcho-capitalism. Um, all of those being very you know, opposed to each other uh, can find unity in their opposition to centrism and moderate uh, politics. Um, and so that, and all of this uh, on his channel is communicated through uh, post-ironic uh, humor. Mm. Um, and I think we can discuss later about how um, people use post-irony to uh, communicate ideas, uh, especially extreme ideas. But um, the post-irony of uh, his communication, it makes you question whether or not he's sincere. Like, oh, he's clearly just making fun of extremists. But the entire time he's telling you to your face, this is what I'm, I'm saying this. This is what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just really, it's fascinating, I find. Um, and it makes, you, it makes you think. But uh, that's the how post-irony and I suppose metamodernism, I think, does challenge um, systems uh, and things that are outside of the internal, uh, internal world. Um, but... Actually, as I say these things, I think you're right about how if metamodernism and post-irony has the potential to challenge status quos, uh, I think, first of all, you have to go through um, the person and so go through um, self-reflection prior to uh, one's challenging of systems. Uh, is this the same guy uh, you sent me a, you sent me a video um, from a guy so unlike the postmodernist who um immediately just goes for the systemic jugular uh the metamodernist uh, challenges you first before then encouraging you to go and potentially challenge uh the systems and status quo uh, what do you think yes okay so that let's talk about that because that gets at another key point of what metamodernism is trying to do it's not trying to completely disavow anything from postmodernism or modernism it's actually trying to take the best of both right so you could actually look at someone doing something like that and let's say they are trying to critique you talk about a guy that is trying to critique like political centrism and but he's using the irony like almost to a point of post ironic to get at sincerity to say something about the system but to make sure you know like you have a place and a role to play. So he's, you're taking the like postmodern um, spirit of going like, let's look at the whole system and the corruption of this meta narrative 
And you're also taking the modern emphasis of going like you as an individual can ascertain the truth. And you're trying to synthesize both of those together in a way that's directed towards positive reconstruction. Now, when I say positive reconstruction, it's important for me to note, you don't have to agree with what someone thinks is the positive pathway for reconstruction. You might look at what they are proposing. For example, this guy talking about uh, like, uh, stay away from political centrism, extremism is the only thing that upsets the status quo and will actually bring change. You might look at that and go, well, I disagree, but it's clear the guy is actually trying through the post-ironic sincerity to give you something to live in, right? So I think that's a big thing. It's like, it's kind of like a natural conclusion of folk level postmodernism is if you tear the whole thing down and people find this, especially well, we've talked about this before, like people that go through like, uh, like a deconstruction of their faith often find this practical reality emerges in their life where you maybe looked at like the house of the story that you were living in and you said, this thing needs to get remodeled. It's not working. It's not functioning. And I think there has been like a chaotic deconstructive demolishing effort and ethos to much of my culture as like an older millennial to just say, like, just tear it all down and walk away. But the natural conclusion of that is, all right, I've done that. And now I'm sitting here in the cold with no shelter. So I have to build something to live in. And it's really interesting. Like I'm seeing a lot more people get into, um, some of them are like revisiting. I, I won't, I won't say this person's name cause I, I don't know him personally. And I don't know if he would like say this, but there's a, there's a fairly well-known guy that has been in like evangelical circles for a while, like roughly my age, who had a pretty pretty public moving away from his faith and is very well known in like evangelical circles. And it's interesting, recently he's been doing videos talking about how I think just for comfort, he started doing some of the old practices that were just part of like his big evangelical subculture and is finding by doing those practices like a strange post-ironic attraction to the faith that he had left. I don't know if that's making any sense at all. So I think what a lot of the meta-modern emphasis is to say, okay, I want to live in something. So you're, you're J, J Reg, Dreg, is that the guy you're saying? Yeah. I don't remember his name. Dreg, J Reg, Dreg. Um, like his effort isn't just to critique, 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 leave you there, right? His effort is to go, like, even in critiquing, I want you to do introspection so that you would actually figure out something that I'm proposing to you might be a positive pathway to reconstruction. Is he the same guy? You sent me a video from a guy that was talking about like optimization culture. And I don't know if that's the same guy or not, but it was, it had a lot of the same kind of like meta modern, I, I like not to make this generational, but it was very much like the aesthetic vocabulary of Gen Z, like, like clearly like really poorly green screen background where it's like, I don't care that my background is really poorly green screen, that sort of stuff. Like the bass boosted, 
aesthetic. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. But he was talking about optimization and the endless quest of optimization for people, uh, especially younger people who have been digital natives. And he was saying something sincere and actually through the irony was getting, I think, people at a real place of depth and sincerity about what they could actually control. So it's one thing to critique the whole system and be like social media, hyper hyper connectivity. It's all like a mess. It's another thing to actually move people and say, all right, so like how would you as an individual have any control if you're just not able? You're like, are you really going to upset the whole system of social media, the algorithms, the things that pushes you to like this constant amorphous social community that you're always comparing yourself to that's leading out to leading to burnout dep depression and despair are you going to tear down that whole system or are you just going to figure out a way to participate in it differently and so that would be like the postmodern systems got brokenness the modern is like you as an individual can still see the truth and do something about it does that make sense um yeah i think so <clears throat> um I find the whole uh, I, I never thought about these things in like specific uh, words and terms. So uh, listening to your uh, lectures on them, I find very helpful. Um, and especially like all the examples that you give, um, like the sitcoms and stories and what have you, especially helpful. Um, but uh let me see let me see let me see i find uh meta modernism and i see it a lot i do see it a lot on uh, the internet on youtube especially because that's where i live i don't live on TikTok. i'm sure it's there though um i do see it a lot in various content creators especially the ones my age um and I like how they do offer you something to think, something to believe in, like a world to participate in um, compared to like the examples of movies that you give, like Fight Club and what have you, which destroy everything and don't really give you anything in return, just kind of just leave you there like in a freaking wet puddle, like crying and sobbing. Like, oh, yes, sweet. Like, this is the world I live in. Like, cool. <laughs> Not thankful. I want to go back to living my little delusions. Um, but, uh, one of the interesting things, so I wanted to bring this up to you, um, cause I wanted to see what you thought. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Sigma males and Patrick Bateman, mm. okay, uh, American yes. psycho. Yes. Yes. Amazing. I have, I, I have want questions to talk a little bit about, about American this. psycho and things. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, I look I, forward to your questions. Um, yes. I have questions for you about this. Just Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, Fight Club, Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, and Sigma Males. Uh, oh, frick, Matt's going. Um, so, hey, Matt, last name. Uh, thanks for uh, joining. Um, Bye, can't Matt. really look at comments all that much because we're in the middle of a conversation, but we appreciate you. Uh, see you around, pal. Uh, Colin, people have never met pal. It's a real uh, parasocial moment. But uh fight club american psycho uh, what's the fight club guy's name uh dernst tyler 
Tyler Durden. I don't know what his name is. Tyler Durden, right. I was thinking of uh, a butt rock singer, but that's fine. Scott Stapp. So you've communicated in your lectures, no clue. So you've communicated in your lectures um, about how Fight Club is very much a postmodern uh, critique on modern storytelling. That the modern uh, hero's story uh, effectively just turns like straight white men into the protagonists and that the world we live in is uh, the world that is constructed by, yes, more straight white men. No like people of color, no women, no gay people, what have you. It's just the straight white dudes, you know? Fred Durst. Evan, thank you so much. Yes, that's the name I was thinking about. Um, anyway, I forget the band that he was from. And so what Limp the Biscuit. Fight Club does is Fight Club deconstructs Limp Biscuit. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. I was thinking about the guy from Limp Biscuit, but I'm actually talking about Fight Club. What the, <laughs> the postmodern critique in Fight Club does is it deconstructs the modernist hero story that wants to tell you that uh, it's just a bunch of straight white men controlling the world. And actually what we need to do is like tear it all down and like freaking beat each other up or something like that. Um, a poor representation of Fight Club, and you do it better in your lectures. Go watch uh, Paul online there. But effectively, Fight Club, as well as American Psycho and other movies, they have a critique on the modernist frame and a critique of the status quo, effectively, but then don't really give you anything in return. All they do is deconstruct. Um, and maybe that was good for a time, but what is very interesting right now is on the internet, you get a bunch of, do you get a bunch of Sigma male compilations, uh, like freaking edits, Sigma edits. There we go. If you look up, uh, Patrick Bateman, literally me, uh, you will get, uh, You'll get all these like mixes and compilations and edits which portray Bateman. Or if you type in, you know, Fight Club, literally me, you'll get dudes of the main protagonist. And it's all these really romanticized edits that really make the characters look really cool and really good. And it'll play like really dope music, like hype, you know, electronics, synth wave music. And sometimes edgier music, like the one I used in my last video, um, where I pretend to be a youth pastor. Um, it'll play this music to really good editing with the main protagonists. But if you understand the postmodern critique, you know that these characters aren't, we, we don't look up to these characters. We're supposed to see these guys as they are effectively the antagonists, which represent the old way of things, which represent the old status quo. And we're supposed to point at that status quo and think to ourselves, wow, that sucks. We need to do something else. What that something else is, who knows, but we need to do something else, apparently. But what the, if you go beyond postmodernism with these stories, what you'll see with the literally me edits is that what the postmodernists did not see coming is that dudes in the future would see their characters and think to themselves, wow, I'm him. I'm going to celebrate that. And so they'll watch the movies like American Psycho and Fight Club and they'll see how terrible these dudes are. 
and they'll think of themselves in terms of these characters ironically like ha, patrick bateman threw a chainsaw at a prostitute ha, me guys and it's not like it's they're not criticizing it they're thinking to themselves yeah that's me i'm that guy and i celebrate that and so what the postmodernist does with these stories to critique the modernists the meta-modernists take and hold sincerely through the guise of irony which i just think is such a wild uh step beyond postmodernism. but you'll see it a lot with the literally me compilations and edits and um a lot of people who like this stuff it is also really ironic some people i like it completely ironically because i think it's a really cool vibe hmm. But there are also dudes that really do seem to identify with it. And these dudes oftentimes deny uh, the modernist narrative because they're, uh, you know, middle class white dudes who might feel disenfranchised. And so we'll see the caricatures that the postmodernists have built and then think to themselves, yeah, that's me. Um, and I think it's really cool. Um, but I think that it's a wild. A uh, very wild um, step beyond postmodernism. How the med, how some young uh, middle class white dudes have taken these characters and celebrated them. Yeah, I don't. Okay, so I want to talk to you about this a little bit because I'm trying to understand it. I I see these debatement stuff all over the place. Uh, it shows up on my feeds. All over the place. I, it's it's been a bit of a head scratcher to me. Um, yes, the synth wave is top notch in those videos. Very very well done. Um, okay, here's a theory. This is not like true technical uh, academic uh, language here. I feel like many ways the older millennials, in particular, like my age responded to the nihilistic vacuum with what we'll call um we'll call it bully mcguire emo nihilism so it was the world is full of nothing and so i'm going to respond by getting in my feelings all the time and i'm gonna listen to dashboard confessional and further seems forever and sunny day real estate and i'm just going to be in my feelings all the time it seems like Gen Z and younger, their response to nihilism instead of like uh, like emo nihilism would be what I call like comedic nihilism. So yes, life is a meaningless joke. Yeah. Let's laugh at it. And that to me seems to be what's going on with the, the Bateman stuff. In fact, uh, I just saw David Fincher, who is the director of Fight Club. He's got like a new movie coming out on Netflix. One of the magazines, like the Vanity Fair kind of magazines or something, asked him a question about, hey, what do you think when you see, like they literally said the question in the question, what do you think that like all of these incels out there are looking at Tyler Durden as this sort of hero? And his response, um, I'm paraphrasing it, is he's like, well, I don't care. Like they missed the point, but I don't care what people take from it. That's not up to me, which is 
I mean, that's another thing altogether. Um, I just wonder how much of it is this, like it's how we respond to the despair of our age. If the story that we live in, you know, within the secular frame leads us to the conclusion that all there is is matter and nothing more. Life is a meaningless joke. The, the bully Maguire emo millennials like my generation responded by like putting their hair in their face and, you know, like crying in our rooms by ourselves. And it seems like different response, especially among men in particular of your age is to go and be like, uh, let's laugh at this literally psychotic narcissist who uh, it, it's just so weird to me, like why that guy in particular becomes the the meme uh, that that's that's part of me is like okay i get responding to the darkness of life with almost like gallows humors you might call it gallows humors gallows humors is like yeah you're in the gallows you might as well crack some jokes about it that to me seems like like the gen yeah. z response and honestly i look at it as an older millennial and go i actually think that's probably a better response than being in your feelings all the time and depressed and emo I, I, maybe it's a better way of responding to it, but I still think there's probably a better way still. Um, I get like concerned about a culture that even like ironically is constantly consuming the Bateman story. Like I, I don't know if our subconscious can as easily sift through all the things we're taking in ironically and be like, hey, in my darkest moments, the images that come to mind I am ironically filtering those out. I don't know. I, I've got, maybe I'm just showing my age here, but when I see that stuff, I go, you know, like I get that it's ironically funny, but I'm also like concerned about it. Like I'm concerned about people that look at, uh, that watch Rick and Morty and think like, oh, Rick's a hero. Like nobody should think that, right? Like nobody comes out of Rick and Morty thinking like Rick is a good guy. Uh, maybe people are aware of that. I'm also part of me is concerned. I mean, I'm, maybe I just, I'm really old. I don't know. Uh, but I'm looking at it and go, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, the line between people ironically enjoying something and like the ironic enjoyment masking like a deep subconscious enjoyment that Rick has very little care for anybody or anything and that you actually secretly want to respond to like the emptiness of the void that way yourself to me is like all right can we talk about this and sift through it i don't know you you have a much better finger on on the pulse of that sort of stuff than i do so that's that's where i'd like to like kind of turn it back to you and go okay tell me what you think is do you get to the point where like you're so i supposed to be ironically consuming this stuff that it's actually demonstrating a deep desire to so like one other example might be when in my generation, like Grand Theft Auto became the thing and all of the parents were like, yeah, you shouldn't play Grand Theft Auto. And you're like, yeah, it's just kind of fun and it's stupid. But then I remember playing it, you know, in my uh, late teens or something like that and playing it and go, okay, am I actually, am I actually kind of like enjoying living out these like dark, horrific fantasies? And if so, even as a joke, I don't know what kind of person is that shaping me to become. I don't know. Maybe you don't have as many concerns. You're like, dude, Paul, calm down. Not a big deal. Or do you share them in any way, shape, or form too? 
Um, I, yeah, mild concern. Um, because I bring up the Patrick Bateman stuff because on one hand, yes, a lot of us, including myself, will consume, uh, you know, the literally me edits because it's a cool vibe, you know, it's funky. It makes you feel cool. Um, but, but why? like I personally, because I don't know, actually, that's a really interesting question why <laughs> that's the thing i'm trying to get at is like why does it appeal because i see it too and i get like the humor behind it. it again to me it's like the comedic nihilism it's like man this guy literally doesn't give an f and part of me goes hmm. how much the attraction to that is actually what what is that disclosing you know like i'm not trying to preach at you and go like you should feel really bad for enjoying it i'm just trying to wonder in the same way like i might have looked at grand theft audio and been playing that you know as like a late teenager you know early college years and going why does that thing attract me and now i've totally probably feel like that youth pastor skit that you did so <laughs> Maybe, but um, I think uh, why is the literally me edits attractive? Um, it might be attractive because for th in the time that we currently exist in, I think we exist in an identity crisis um a kind of identity vacuum where you can identify with whatever you want and you need to identify with something um and for a lot of uh, for a lot of young men they want to identify with something that is cool they want to identify with something that will make them feel cool um and you know as things have been for like a long time uh longer than metamodernism uh Things that are cool can also be very edgy, and so they they identify with the edgy things. Uh, in a va within the context of an identity vacuum, um, what Patrick Bateman and what uh, Fight Club's Fred Durst offers is it offers a kind of masculinity that a lot of young men are feel as though they might be lacking and in yeah. that they find identity and place wow. and so why i find it attractive is not because i lack a sense of identity or masculinity it's mostly down to perhaps it might be down to a generational aesthetic that i find attractive Oh, um, which that. is why I use the CM aesthetic in my own uh, context, in my own content. Uh, like, for example, my uh, video where I criticize um, red pill manosphere masculinity, which is uh, complements actually very well um, Patrick Bateman and Fight Club Fred Durst masculinity um 
frick, are we, are we buffering? I don't know. Anyway, the red-pilled Manosphere dudes will offer a lot of young men who are struggling internally um, with their identity, with their masculinity, um, perhaps in response to the postmodern critique that they have misunderstood that says all men are bad. And you think to yourself, wow, that must be true. I can't be a man anymore. And so these red-pilled uh, manosphere types offer uh, to these young men who might feel disenfranchised, may feel lost, a sense of place and identity and masculinity, manhood, which is where I, in my own uh, video, mm. uh, critique that form of manhood because I've, I mean, in that video, I compared it to uh, Roman imperialism. Um, in contrast to the masculinity of Jesus, who looks absolutely nothing like uh, Patrick Bateman or Fred Durst or Walter White, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but um, even a lot of like trad cath um, dudes online, yeah. traditional Catholics, uh, there are so many like trad cath, uh, rad trad cath radical traditional Catholic uh, edits out there that portray this very strong man, uh, Jesus' masculinity. Um, and even if, uh, if you find the Patrick Bateman, literally me stuff appealing um, in a kind of masculine identity form, you might also find the rad traf, the rad trad calf, uh, at its also appealing, but um, I think it probably comes down to a sense of identity. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so how much, how much of it has to do with the fact that like Bateman isn't an NPC, and there seems to be a deep sense of not. In a, in a world where, like, again, our social, our amorphous social networks, there's never a point in which you could, let's say, you know, 40 years ago, or let's say, like, my parents' generation, right? My dad was like a high school football stud, right? So he probably had a really strong sense of social acceptance in his neighborhood, in his city, in his community. And all he had to do was, like, compare himself to the other dudes in his high school and then compare their high school to the other high schools that they would play against in football. So if you were like successful at football, you know, the network still is pretty small of people that you're comparing yourself to. The digital age, hyperconnectivity, like we're always constantly comparing ourselves to an ever shifting amorphous network where it's like, man, what would happen if this live stream had like I don't know how many people are watching now. Let's say it's only like 10 people watching now. Would we feel better if there were 10,000 people watching? Well, maybe until then you go watch like some other YouTubers live streamed and then they, they have a million, right? So like you always have, and there's this there's philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, who's really, really interesting guy. And I, I think there's a, a couple of books uh, I've been going through recently of his that are really interesting. One of them is, uh, what does he call it? I think it's called like the burnout society or something like that. And he talks about how we've switched in becoming an achievement society. And as an achievement society, we're always trying to self-optimize. 
The problem is that we're also in a hyper-connected world where in this hyper-connectivity, we have, and I'm, this is my language, not his, we don't have like a, a measuring stick that would be clear and consistent all the time. And I wonder how much, especially guys that spend a lot of time online, how much they feel this sense of like, no matter what they do, they're going to be an NPC and that nobody wants to be an NPC because you're, I mean, they're an NPC in, in a game for the reason, for a reason, right? Is because they're not the main character in the game. And part of it is like, they're programmed. They don't think for themselves, their background. Nobody wants to be in the background of the story. Like we all want to play a role that's seen as significant in the story. And maybe I wonder, just as you're talking, how much like the Bateman thing and the Tyler Durden thing is like, well, I could be more than a non-PC, a non, uh, more than an NPC. Maybe. Um, I think that relates to what you were commenting on one of your lectures uh, about how I, I think it was your episode three uh, where you brought up the Matrix and when uh, the dude took the red pill and how we, this you know story of going on an adventure appeals to all of us because we don't want to you know live in this kind of vapid world where nothing really matters and you're just participating um, we mm -hmm. all want to you know participate in stories where we are active and we're doing something um and for the kind of dudes who might feel disenfranchised uh kicked to the curb or like uh they don't matter they may view um society um we live in one they made society as this is the place for postmodernists and the place for whom postmodernists um this is the place for postmodernists and for the people for whom they venerate and those would be the people who are left out in the modernist stories but whatever um i don't fit into that and so if society is a postmodern one and the people who get by are are the people who the postmodernists like um then i don't fit into that then to try and participate in that is as if it is to take the blue pill it is as if you are an npc and you have to reject that you have to become your own person and what does that look like it looks like being a little less politically correct it looks like being a bit edgier uh you know doing this that and the other it looks a bit like being a little bit more like uh patrick durden or patrick bateman I have to keep calling him Fred Durst. I don't remember his name. But it looks like rejecting what you may perceive as the societal status quo, but, I mean, that societal status quo might really just be more of a caricature of, like, American coastal city people. For sure, yeah. And that's not really what uh, society looks like in whole. Hmm. That's uh, that's a brilliant insight. I mean, that's helped even just in the short period of time we've talked through this. Like, I'm I'm seeing it. Like, I'm getting it more now. What you just said there is to me makes a lot of sense. So, if you think of 
like I've seen these charts, um, you know, especially over these last few years with the shift in thinking about who's not been included in the story. There are actually like, uh, like comp no, academics, you can see this actually in some corporations uh, where they are doing uh, in these kinds of training to make people more aware of uh, intersectionality, oppressed peoples, and almost uh, these charts, and I wish I would have one handy, where you can, there's like a most oppressed to like least oppressed um, scale. So if the way that you could actually get inclusion in society is to demonstrate how oppressed you are, but you are a guy that looks like me and you, and you could never actually work your way up into that level of acceptance, well, why not just take the other pathway, which is to say, like, let's burn it all down, or let's, uh, let's just go, let's go Patrick Bateman on it. And, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense for giving voice to why, because it's not like everything that appeals to us and we just look at it and go like, man, that's cool. I, I think we have to like take a crowbar underneath that stuff. And maybe there's nothing. No, I don't, I don't think there's ever just nothing there. Even if it's like something that just appeals to us as being beautiful. And we ask like, why are we experiencing this as being beautiful? Or why we experience an attraction to this. Like, why does that mean? Why do these videos just like innately attract me? I, I do think that deserves a kind of introspection that uh, would help us from not like being deceived by the possibility that sub unconsciously we are being shaped into a particular kind of person. So I think that's what I was trying to vocalize with my concern earlier was how much how much like the content consumption even if we're going in saying like i'm ironically liking something how much of it is shaping us to be a different kind of person I, and i'm speaking of this in kind of like a virtue ethics sort of way how do we get to the point and i've seen these you've probably seen this too online where i there's like these accounts especially on twitter or x or whatever it is and i'm, I'm sure it's on TikTok too of like these like explicit pagan accounts which frequently I see this like meme over and over and it's like, here's Zeus, like ma masculine, you know, like alpha Zeus. And then you have like the beta Christ on a cross. And it's yeah. like, why would you ever worship this weak God? You know, like it's that same sort of sort of thing that I actually think is does feed into like a pagan resurgence of re that impulse of like power power looks like this not like that and this is deserving of your attention and worship is what has power um power to actually and this might get at like maybe the most primitive religious impulse is the, to, the ability to control what seems uncontrollable to you. And if there's something that you can give your attention to that helps you feel like you have a sense of control over the things that seem uncontrollable to you, right? So if you're like the kind of guy what we're talking about and you're struggling with where you fit and you're struggling with the meaning crisis, who is what, what kind of icon are you going to look at what kind of thing, what kind of God are you going to give your attention to that will allow you to have a sense of control?
over your life to change those outcomes. And I think that's probably like at the heart of the religious and pagan impulse. I, <coughs> I think Christ changes and redirects that impulse. We could probably talk about that another time, but I, I think that that's a, a deep, deep drive in the human species is to go, what is beyond our control? What must I do? And who must I give my trust to in order to be able to have the control that would give me a better outcome? And that's behind the whole system of sacrifice. Why people would ever sacrifice their children to Baal or to Molech is the unction of, if I do this, the things that have seemed outside of my control, that my crops aren't growing, that like my other kids have been getting the plague, that if I do this, then maybe that which is I'm giving my attention to, which is beyond my control, will help me get control over my life in a way. I don't know. Maybe like, you know, maybe the Bateman, maybe the Bateman meme, I don't want to like upset anybody here, but maybe the Bateman meme is in that way, is kind of like an idol. You know, it's like a manifestation of this ideal that we look to that may be able to give us control. I mean, it, again, synthwave is cool. And there's something like humorous about it. Um, yeah. It is cool. And it is humorous. Um, but um, I, I don't I don't plan on uh, discussing this stuff uh, too critically um, for this interview because I don't really want to be uh, a negative Nelly. Um, cause I think, uh, there's a lot of potential for, um, this whole meta modernist stuff to be like super evangelistic, mm, I think. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And so it is cool. Uh, the aesthetics that are used, um, the edits are dope and the music is fire. And if instead of heralding at the altar uh, Patrick Bateman or Tyler Durden. Got him! There we go. Nice. Um, and, and instead of Walter White and, you know, these characters who are rich and killing people and drug dealing and killing people. If instead we put at the altar of our aesthetic and vibe i guess jesus controversial claim i know i'm really rocking the boat on that one you can the reality is that there is i think a very great potential to communicate through metamodern means and i agree with you uh in your lectures that you can't really at least as the way things are right now you can't really communicate very intentionally metamodern uh, aesthetics. Mm. Um, it has to be something that just like comes forth uh, in itself in a time and moment. Um, and if we are in that time and moment, then I think part of what that looks like is Jesus is a quote-unquote weak character to use the same imagery that you were using that the pagans use 
Um, he's weak, he's pathetic, he gets put on a cross, and he dies. Compared to big buff Zeus, who's on steroids and is beating up his wife. Uh, isn't he cool? Well, actually, according to God, that is not what is cool. And according to the guy who's in charge, what is cool and what is dope and what is vibey is laying down one's life for those who you love and the greatest form of love of all is self-sacrifice and dying for one's neighbor and that is actually what is strong that is actually the beef steroids that's so zeus over there who's jacked and hitting the gym and making his bank account go blah and getting all the women getting the respect getting everything the dude who's in charge zeus over there does not lay his life down for his neighbor. He does not lay his life down for those he loves. He is incapable of such things. By those metrics, Zeus is weak and Jesus is strong. Yahweh is the one who is strong because he can, in fact, self-sacrifice, unlike Zeus, who is incapable of such things. And in fact, Zeus can't put anyone before himself because his aim is to get big, strong, and powerful. And Christ's aim is to sacrifice power and to sacrifice himself for the goods of his neighbor and for the good of God. And, well, that is the uh, Jesus story in a dichotomy to the pagan stories and the pagan myths. And how you would communicate that in a metamodern sense i mean i suppose i'd be interested in seeing like what you might think like is that something you can do or is it mm. just like yeah it really just comes down to just going for it and just seeing mm -hmm. what happens all right yeah a couple points i probably have to wrap up relatively soon but i, I do want to talk about this a little bit um okay so quick story about what you were just saying you know, the Zeus versus Christ comparison. Uh, in the 1990s, there was a biologist named William Muir at the University of Purdue who had um, attempted to do this experiment to figure out how he could increase the egg laying production of chickens. I tr trust me, this has a point. Um, and what he did was he started to selectively breed the biggest and strongest chickens, biggest and strongest hens. And so his uh, experiment was I'm going to put all of the hens, the biggest and strongest ones together, what he called the super chickens together in one group. They'll be group A. Group B will be just like kind of average, but kind and cooperative chickens who do not produce individually as many eggs as each one of these individual super chickens. And so his experiment would be really simple. He wanted to see if I kept I bred, bred these hens, bred these chickens, these super chickens, and then I put them all together, would they be able to produce like exponentially more eggs and be more successful than the average, average, but kind of just like kind and cooperative chickens. After several generations of breeding these chickens, he was shocked by the results. The average, but kind and cooperative chickens vastly outproduced the super chicken group. And in fact, at the end of the experiment, there was only three chickens in the super chicken group left alive because they had all pecked each other to death. So the very same thing that was like, I'm going to get what's mine. So we'll say a super chicken group is Zeus group, like the, Zo the Zeus chickens. They were the ones that looked like they appeared to be strong, but they were also got getting their strength through uh, like 
killing other chickens to get their resources, right? Over time, what ended up happening was that group actually died out. And the last three that remained didn't even have any feathers left. They looked pitiful and terrible. Whereas the other group vastly outproduced them. And in the evolutionary terms, that means they won in the long run. They were able to pass on their genetic code. I bring that up because we talk about like the appeal of Christ and Zeus. The appeal is whether or not you want to play the short-term game or the long-term game. The short-term game looks like you can use treachery, deceit. You can employ the methods of Zeus. No, like, yeah, Zeus is going to be really, really great until he shows up on your doorstep wanting your wife. Like, yeah, that's then what are you gonna do? Zeus then. Um, no, like Zeus couldn't even control his own passions. He couldn't even control his own lusts. Like, what kind of God is that? Do you want to play the long-term game? The long-term game is like there's a pattern to which reality is designed to optimally function. And by abiding by that pattern, we, in, we enjoy more of the goodness, the beauty, and the truth that God has put into creation and is actually like exponentially growing in creation. So I want to tell that story is like a, those tempted kind of like by the Zeus and Jesus comparison. It's like the way of Jesus, the long game. So the lamb enthroned as ruler over the cosmos is a slain lamb. And you were tempted to go, well, isn't the one who slayed the lamb, the one in charge? And you're like, nope. You know, so we're, we're playing the long game here. The metamodern question to like answer that briefly, I think, uh, I'm, I don't know. I think we're like still in the midst of this and I don't want to say anything as an expert. So I'll throw out some hypotheses. One thing I would say is like Christian communities that actually want to help people get to a point of sincerity and hope and to live in the story of Jesus will need to be well-versed in like the aesthetics and the vocabulary of the generation and the context that they're situated in. But this is nothing new. H.R. Uh, Niebuhr talked about like, this is the perennial challenge of Christianity and the gospel is that it always has to be recontextualized to the context in which it inhabits. And it always has to recontextualize using the vocabulary and the aesthetic that allows people to actually see the truth. Because over time, you take, you know, we do this when we read the Bible all the time and people come to strange readings of scripture because the scriptures were written to ancient contexts in a different language. And so it can be difficult for us to just extrapolate cleanly into our time and context. So what would it look like in the metamodern context? Uh, I've talked about this uh, in that last video, but I think one of the things is uh, like just embracing the cringe. It's just, it's embracing that you're actually like, I'm not that big of a deal. Like my church isn't a big deal. Like we're not, we're not like branding ourselves as people saving the world. Like we're weak. We're foolish. We got decent potlucks from time to time. You'll probably be bored with our sermons. Like we're not going to feign trying to sell you something. We just can't do that anymore because I think the the heartbreak and the pain that people are experiencing from a vacuum of story and a vacuum of community is like they just they want to feel. They want to feel something real and not the, this was like a Gen X and millennial strategy. We're going to brand our church as authentic. And it's like, you can't brand being authentic. It's like just another layer of advertising 
It's another layer of just feigning something that isn't sincerity. So people actually want sincerity, but they don't want non-self-aware cringe. Like non-self-aware cringe is the, I'm branding our churches. Like when you walk through the door, you go on our website, we're like, we're the authentic church. You're like, just stop. Like you're, cause you have to demonstrate in, in the meta modern frame, you have to demonstrate that you're aware that you're situated in a story and you have to be demonstrate, like you break the fourth wall and be like, oh yeah, I get it. I'm in a story. If I, if I was born in Somalia, I would not be a Christian. It's 99.8% Muslim. Like I'm aware of that. Like it would be very, very rare for me to be a Christian. I get that I'm a Christian today because my parents were. I have an aware of my context and the story that I'm situated in. The postmodern impulse is to be like, well, yeah, well, Paul, now that you're aware of that, you should leave that story. And the metamodern instinct is to go, dude, well, what other story would I go to? So yeah, I'm aware that I'm in a story. I'm aware that I'm still a Christian today, primarily because I was raised a Christian. I'm confessing it to you. If you're like, hey, you're blind. I'm like, yeah, I probably got some blind spots. So I think that sort of dialogue allows us to have like real inter-religious dialogue and inter-story dialogue with people who don't share our story in a way that's authentic. So I could sit down with a Somali Muslim and be like, hey, let's talk about the differences in our perspective on like who the person of Christ is. And like, I don't have to do the, well, we're all believing the same thing. That's the thing the postmodern was, was rightly critiquing is this sort of like, all you know we have one overarching story here and it's all the same thing and everybody so it, it pushes people into this gross homogenous monoculture and people are reacting and rebelling against the global mono monoculture in some ways that are, is really obvious right like whether it's like i'm not celebrating these things i'm just highlighting them whether it's like nationalist movements um like even even acts of like you know, Islamic terrorism in some ways that we call it terrorism, right? Is people re rejecting the the idea that we're just going to have one like homogenous global monoculture. And so we don't want to do that. So when I sit down with a Somali Muslim and we're talking together, it's like, hey, I fully expect that you are not going to agree with me on like who Jesus was. And we're going to have these differences. And we both confess that we're socially located within a story but that opens us up to like sincere dialogue. Yeah, great comment, Emin. The mono pluralism, that's it. Like um, the unitive pluralism of John Hick, that to me is like the most colonial thing you could have is to go in and be like, yes, Muslim, Buddhist, indigenous person that is practicing like some form of uh, like spiritism or something. All of us believe the same thing. It was like easy for you to say when you're the one in the position of power. <laughs> it's like that's where the post postmodern colonial critique should hit us is that sort of stuff. Now, I'm not doing like the uber fundamentalist hyper exclusivism thing either, which is to say like everybody anywhere else doesn't share my exact same beliefs is destined to damnation. I'm not saying that either. But I'm just saying like one of the things you'll have to be able to do to show that you're aware that you're socially located in a particular story, confess it, be humble about it, 
I think I maybe mentioned him earlier, like a friend of mine that I think is doing this really, really well is Andy Squires. Andy writes from a place that I think is doing like the meta modern thing. You're like, it's like ironic sincerity happening all the time where you're like, does he actually really like, you know, he'll write about like, I visited this Pentecostal church and it was strange, but it was beautiful. You know, like, yeah, did you actually think it was beautiful or were because I'm expecting you to talk about how strange and corrupt that church is because that's the move. It's like, no, it's strange, but kind of like weird, and it was beautiful. That's, to me, some of the modern shift stuff. I think people moving towards, last point I'll make, people moving towards like, um, you know, what you might consider like the more liturgical expressions of worship, the stuff that they probably don't get that much but there's something mysterious about it i think that's part of it too because it's again like i think it's self-aware cringe versus non-self-aware cringe to me non-self-aware cringe is probably like the old seeker sensitive stuff which was like we're just gonna do a like poor man's version of a u2 concert here and it just won't be as good as u2 it won't be as good as like whatever band we're trying to copy um yeah, Andy Squires, S Q U Y R E S. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That's that's some of my speculative thoughts. Not a problem. Um, I think a lot of good thoughts, but uh, that I can take that for granted. Um, I. Liked a lot of your points about. Um, I'm glad that you eventually. I'm glad that you brought up cringe because, when discussing metamodernism, I think it's important to talk about both cringe and irony, um, as well as you know authenticity. Um, as these are all, it seems as though these are all very important experiences uh, within metamodernism, like and. Even as a young person existing on the internet, and I've, as I've been existing like here since the late, nah, early 2010s, um, cringe compilations and cringe videos have been about for like so long that it feels as though you can't escape them. And you're very aware that you know there are things over here that are cringe, and you must not be cringe. It sucks to be cringe. Um, cringe bad but what i like about um the potential of what i like about from what i might be understanding from metamodernism is that cringe doesn't have to be something that is like out and out rejected um like raw authentic cringe okay that's that makes you that sucks you don't want raw, authentic cringe. Um, yeah, because that's naivete uh, about your story. Yeah, and it's just kind of not nice, and uh, you and you feel it in your bones. But other forms of cringe, like effectively, yeah, being aware of one's own potential for cringe, and not having this like crippling fear of. Oh, am I cringe yet? Oh, am I going to be cringe today or tomorrow? Uh, not being uh, crippled by this uh, potentiality for 
fringe, but rather embracing the potentiality and just, I suppose, running with it as mm-hmm. I might be cringe today. I might be cringe tomorrow and I might feel that in my bones, but I am living and participating in a story and I am, by consequence, I am experiencing, I am becoming more human in my embrace of the potentiality for cringe and in becoming more human through that potentiality, as well as engaging in a narrative and a story, I, I exist. I am Mm -hmm. becoming, I am a person again rather than this creature that is curled up and terrified of offending this person or uh, being considered embarrassing by that person, either because you didn't... Either because you thought to yourself that, oh man, if I acknowledge that i'm in a story that might offend someone who's not in that story but yes i like that we can all participate in stories um and what's the i think what this offers to uh what i think this offers missiologically is that yes we all participate in stories like the existing is the great story and god entered into that story god participates in the story alongside us and so you can have your stories i am irish i have my irish stories i participate in irish history and i moved to the united states i now participate in immigrants Uh, stories um to came to this country um you are not and you are not and neither are you you have your own stories and you can participate in those it doesn't make you less of a person doesn't make you um whatever negatives that you may have assumed it might make you and what that means for christianity is that we can all have our own stories we can all participate in our own cultures and what isn't being done is we are not effectively colonizing each other's stories and each other's meta narratives. What we are doing is revealing uh, that uh, Yahweh revealed through the person Jesus Christ, second person, the, whole, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is the fullness and actualization of meta narratives. He is the fullness of your own story. He is the fullness of my own story. And so until, and someone's going to call that colonization anyway, and you know, screw that, who cares? Whatever. If it makes you happy, it makes you happy calling it colonization. But if Jesus is the fullness of all of our narratives and all of our stories that we want to participate in, then you can have your story. I can have my story. We don't have to fight and conquer each other. We can co. There is a potentiality for coexisting without pretending as though there are no stories and without pretending as though we have to effectively turn ourselves into white slate statues to get along. Uh, that isn't the case. Um, and Christians have been doing this for centuries and centuries, I think. I don't know. I'm not a historian, but. 
I think that is one of the uh, benefits of metamonism within a, a Christian missiological frame is the opportunity to allow people to participate in their own stories and even embrace what the world might consider cringe in order to reframe that as actually what God considers based. Um, if dying to self is cringe, God thinks that's based. If sacrificing yourself to the benefit of your neighbor is cringe, God thinks it's based. If this, that, and the other is cringe, if loving your neighbor and loving people who slap you in the face and then turning the other cheek is cringe, God thinks it's based and God did it on the cross. So I think if there is any kind of fear that may pop up in the near future, uh, from more fundamentalist types that, oh, metamodernism is, is from Satan, just like they said uh, by postmodernism, I am inclined to disagree. Um, I think there's a great potentiality for uh, the metamodern narratives to be used for the glory of Christ um, in order to make what, again, the world may consider cringe in order to reframe that as actually what God thinks is based. That's a great, that's a great place to land the plane. I, I, I'm going to so. have to wrap up, but this is, um, this has been really enjoying for me, enjoyable for me and, uh, talking views like it's, um, we've had a few, a couple of these now and I, I come out the, the back and forth and the exchange of ideas and the perspective, like you're saying, it's like actually happening right now. The context that you're situated in is a different convictional location them from where I'm standing, you know, we have some overlap, obviously, on some maybe some really key things, but we're also not the same. And so we like look out. The, the picture is like we're on different mountain peaks, looking out on a valley, and we're trying to say what we're seeing in that place. And what you've shown me from your your location is has helped me see a more more complete picture. So I love getting to do this, and uh, I'd, I'd like to do it again sometime. Well, I hope you found that dialogue to be helpful. If not anything else, maybe thought-provoking. Whatever the case may be, I'd love to hear your comments. You can reach out to me on Patreon in the discussion forum for this episode. You can always direct message me there. You can also connect me on, in our Deep Talks Patreon Discord server. You'll get a link to that by uh, signing up to become a patron. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram or on X or Twitter, whatever we're calling it again. I've got some brand new videos up on my YouTube channel, some of which I posted audio versions of, but some of which I have not, including the last video I did on Loki. I don't know how many of you are watching that series. Much of the Marvel stuff to date has been, frankly, pretty disappointing. Not much to say. Seems a bit like a cash grab. That isn't actually working very well. But Loki's different. Uh, I've been very impressed with this show, and there are a lot of very fascinating ideas embedded in this story and i take time to talk about what i think is the most significant idea the show is wrestling with in my latest video on youtube so make sure you subscribe and you can click the notifications and all the things the youtubers say you should do so that you can get access or you can have more ease of access to to getting those videos when i do them and put them out i want to give an extra special thanks to the following supporters on patreon clint jesse alex brandon Daniel, Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, 
Rob, Sam P, Stephen H, and Tim. Thank you guys for your generous support. I can't do this without you. Uh, And that's not just a cliche. It's not just some tag phrase I say every week. I genuinely mean it. If you weren't there to support, uh, this thing would just shut down. I can't keep doing it. Simultaneously, I do ask you to consider becoming a supporter if you haven't done so already and help me reach my goal of 200 patrons. I've been doing this for about six years now. And uh, 200 patrons helps me get to the point of reaching the goal that I've wanted to reach, which is to essentially do this instead of adjuncting. I'm a full-time pastor, got other things I'm doing on the side as well. But my hope was, you know what, instead of doing this in a classroom where people have to pay thousands of dollars in tuition, get into debt, I'd love to do this in a format that's most helpful to maybe even more people, which it definitely is. There's thousands of you listening right now. and. if 200 of, you, 200 of you decided to support, that would help tremendously. So please consider doing that, and then we can take this podcast, what I'm doing on YouTube, to the next level. Finally, if you have some ideas for what future episodes should be about, reach out to me. Tell me, like, hey, Paul, can you talk about this? Or I got a question on this subject. I love hearing that stuff that gives me a good idea of the things all of you might be wrestling with. And if I can provide some sort of helpful insight, or at least turn you in steer you, I should say, in the direction of better resources to help you maybe read about something, or maybe I can explain something from an academic book that helps you get into that book as an entry point, uh, a work of theology or philosophy. I would love to be able to do that. So, you know, tell me what you want to hear about in this podcast or what kind of videos you want to see on my channel. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, we'll talk again.